Welcome to Pastor Stephen Samuel's podcast, where it's our desire that you'll be encouraged and empowered to live as a disciple-making follower of Jesus. I know there's been a lot of discussion throughout church uh, history, if you will, in our, in our generation or two behind about what faith is. And we talk about, you know, our faith a lot of times. And my, my teaching of this is not to assume that you don't know, but maybe just bring some clarity of how you can exercise your faith to move forward in what God has for you and me and this church body as a whole. What God has for us, we have to have a level of faith that we know how to operate in. Does that make sense? And so this morning, again, this this might seem very elementary, but I think the Lord wants to teach us some things about how to use our faith well. Now, um, let's look at the big picture. So like the big picture of what faith means for the Christian spans long before we were here and many of us long, long after we're gone. When we talk about having faith, it's just not believing and believing in good things. It's believing in a very specific thing that God has desired to bring about in the world. And that story, as we discussed a little bit last week, goes all the way back to this man named Abraham. God's desire, the panoramic view of what God is trying to do in the world, we kind of need to know that if we're going to be successful in what we're doing in our lives. Let me give you a little, little example, if you will. And I think a lot of times, not that we're intending to be dishonorable or, or to mitigate or limit the knowledge of what the gospel is, but we have reduced many times the full influence or effect of what it means to follow Jesus to a few simple statements, which is great if you're talking to someone under the age of five, but when you're talking to people who are living in a real-life situation of crisis and difficulty and struggle, a truncated gospel, a minimized gospel, is very powerless. So we've minimized the gospel many times to just, here's what the gospel is. You need to ask Jesus to forgive you of your sins, so that you can be born again and you can go to heaven. And that's the gospel. And though that simple principle is involved in the gospel, there's so much more. And to look at the gospel in such a reduced manner means you are missing out on the full picture of what it means to follow Jesus. Let me give you an example. If I come to you, Hugh, and I think most of us in this room are Americans, right? A few that are not, don't worry. Now's the time to get in. Just kidding. <laughs> if I come to you and I say, tell me what it means to be an American, you could pretty simplify it and say something like, well, it just means you're born here in this country, and that means you're an American. But yet, you can miss out on what it fully means to be an American if you don't know the 200 years behind us that brought you to the liberties and the freedoms that you enjoy today. When I travel all over the world, it is not hard in any airport anywhere to recognize an American. You just know they're from America. Number one, they're very loud. And they're usually laughing which you don't see that in other countries. People are very reserved and they don't express a lot of emotion in public settings. And then of course, 
the sense of freedom is what makes an American an American, that we are a free people, which that has been ingrained into us. And if you ask back to the question, what is an American? You really don't have the full weight of what that means until you go all the way back to our history and heritage, that there was a time when these 13 independent colonies were under the oppression of a, mag of a king in England, and they were being taxed, and they were being oppressed, and then our founding fathers, Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, George Washington, John Jay, Hamilton, these men, John Adams, came together, and they under the inspiration of what they believed God was telling them, birthed a nation. And they drafted a constitution that gave to every person a sense of value. They called this the Bill of Rights. Gave us a people a value that was not to be overrun by government powers. And with that idea that every person, that these inalienable rights that we have, the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness was not something a government could give, but what God has given to us as a people, that's what makes an American an American. And then you know the history of just, not just the Revolutionary War, but how we went from a people subjugated by an empire of England to a people that became free and then worked through the difficulties of becoming a nation among other nations. Our interactions with France, our interactions with England, and then as we begin to spread across the United States, uh, the land geography of North America, how we became the nation that we are, and then the, the, the blight or the, the difficulties we went through as a civil war and a nation that, that struggled with federal government and states' rights and the, and the battlegrounds of Gettysburg and the battlegrounds uh, throughout the South of how freedom was given to an enslaved people on, because of the bloodshed by Americans. And the history, as you go as far back as the Civil War and then moving forward to the Civil Rights Movements, and then even, even earmarks throughout our history that we as a nation feel that other people in other nations would never feel because they haven't experienced or know the history of what we have experienced as a nation. How the stories of World War I, World War II, and, and D-Day, and, and just those phrases, if you're a veteran or if you've served in our military and served this nation, they provoke a deeper sense of, I am an American than somebody that just reads a textbook. And with that example, I will say this. A lot of times we truncate or we minimize what it means to follow Jesus as in just receiving forgiveness of sins and not realizing the story begins not 200 years ago, but 3,000 years ago with a man named Abraham. He, leaving his pagan family and heritage of wealth and success, heard the voice of a God, the God of Israel, that would later be known as the God of creation, speaks to him and says, I want to make of you a nation. And Abraham believed God and left everything. And as he left everything, him and his small family grew into this massive nation. And then they were enslaved by the Egyptians for 400 years. And at the end of that 400 years, God came to a man named Moses and said to him, I have seen, heard the cry of my people, and I have come down to deliver them. And over a period of 10 months or nine months, 
God comes down physically in form and through plagues and the river of Nile running red with blood and then locusts and then frogs and then hail and then God blots out the sun and with a mighty hand he takes that one point something million people of the Jews out of bondage, out of slavery. They were slaves one day and became a free people the next. And that process of sacrificing the lamb so that the death angel would slay the Egyptian firstborn and not the firstborn of the Jews, that Passover festival was the beginning of months or the beginning of the calendar year for the people who were now being liberated, the Jews. And then the story goes on how Moses led them through the wilderness and God gave to them the law of how he would want to come down or how he desired to be with them as their God and they be his people. And God wanted this relationship with this people, Israel. And so because he desired it, he gave them a law of how to behave in his presence and not to provoke offense between them and God by keeping the law. And as Moses gives them the Ten Commandments, it immediately becomes apparent within a matter of weeks, if you will, or days, that they cannot keep this law. And yet God has a longing to be with people, to walk among them, to come sit down and eat with them. And then in Exodus, around Exodus 20 or so, it says that Moses and the children of Israel, the leaders of Israel, went up to the mountain, 70 of them, and the God of Israel came out of hiding, if you will. And as where his feet would touch down, the pavement would become sapphire clear. Could you imagine watching God step down the mountain? And what did they do? It says they did what every little kid would do when friends come over. They busted out the table, the food, the drinks, and they had a party with the God of Israel. And God's desire has always been from Abraham to Moses to be with his people. And yet that same people, though they feared God and they called themselves the children of God, didn't know how to worship God with all of their heart. And so the Ten Commandments, though it was intended to show them how to be in, company, in the company of God, pushed them from God because they were not able to keep the Ten Commandments. And then you go from Moses taking the children of Israel all the way through the wilderness, 40 years, and then you get to Joshua who brings them into the promised land and God gives them a promise. This is your land and this is the land that I will come and dwell with you in, right? And then he gives them battle after battle, territory throughout the Middle East and they are still fighting that battle. It is their land because God gave it to them. Not what the UN says, not what the United States says, not what governments of the world says. The land of Israel belongs to the Jews because God gave it to a man named Abraham thousands of years ago. And the last time I checked, he didn't change his mind. And God comes down to Israel, and as they're winning and conquesting throughout the Middle East, they find this cyclical pattern of every 40 years. They would get near God, and then they would fall away from following God's principles. They would get near in repentance and revival, and God would deliver them, and then they would fall away because selfishness and pride and greed and sexual perversion would overtake the culture. And that cycle of 40 years went for about another 400 years, cyclically, of the judges. And then finally God said, I'm going to raise up someone to establish this kingdom. 
and he raised up a little boy, 14-year-old kid named David. And David would be the first king of Israel to bring together the tribes of Israel and set in front of them or build for them a nation that sought the face of God. And he took the Ark of the Covenant and brought it to Jerusalem. And I don't have time to go into the meaning of that, but the presence of God was in a place that everybody could access it. And for a season of time, the, the reign of David's life over, that, over the, the land of Israel was one of the most fruitful times. And then he handed it off to his son Solomon, even more fruitful, no war. And God had a place on earth in the land of Israel under the reign of King Solomon that had never been seen before. But sure enough, sin crept in. Wickedness crept in. Perversion crept in because the nature of man was not changed by keeping the moral law. There is no salvation in keeping the law because we cannot do it. And so God, because he had promised long before this even happened, that one day someone would come to change the nature of people's hearts from being sinful to righteous, not based on what they could or couldn't do, but because their DNA, their identity would be changed. And the way he would do it, it was a mystery throughout the Old Testament. How would God do it? How would God make for himself a people that would not turn their back on him? And so we go from David to Solomon, and then from Solomon, the kingdom of Israel splits because one side is faithful, the northern kingdom was, more faith, was not as faithful as the southern kingdom, and yet both of them slowly had cycles of following after God and then not following after God, keeping Torah and then not keeping Torah, keeping the, the Sabbaths and not keeping it. And then God would then turn over the children of Israel to the Assyrians in the north who would come in and invade, and then the Babylonians, and then the Persians, and then the Greeks, and then the Romans. And each of these oppressive regimes that would come to rule over the people would cause them to turn their hearts back to God, but as soon as there was a little liberation, they would go back to their humanity and wickedness. And then 400 years more of silence from the last prophet of the Old Testament until this wiry, crazy-dressed, honey-eating, locust-eating man appears on the scene named John the son of a Levitical priest. And he says, the kingdom is coming. God will once again live with us, prepare the way. And everybody thought, he's crazy. What is he talking about? And John's ministry exploded. His preaching exploded in such a powerful way that thousands upon thousands began to congregate back into Israel because the king is coming and he was going to reestablish the covenant that God promised to Abraham. But they had a little different idea of what it would look like. They thought that king would set up a military army and wipe out the Romans and the Greeks and push back the Persians and, and they would have a political system. And when Jesus comes on the scene, he said things like, my kingdom is not of this world. And the people that he was gathering were not those with military might and strength and power to subjugate and cause others to worship him. His kingdom was an everlasting kingdom. And he would change the heart of all who came to his kingdom to be like him so that they would rule the world, not with hate, anger, and fear, but with the love of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And he established that kingdom for three and a half years with these 12 goofy guys that didn't have a clue what he was really doing. They just knew he's the one. He's going to do it. In fact, the little discussions between the disciples of, well, listen, am I going to be the right-hand guy or are you going to be the right-hand guy? And they were bickering and fighting about it. In fact, one of them, James and John, they want to be on his right hand and his left hand, but they didn't have the, 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 the boldness to ask Jesus, so they sent their mother. And John, John and, James, uh, John and um, his brother's mom, they, they, his mom comes to them and he says, uh, Jesus, I got a question to ask of you, but I need you to say yes before I ask it. And Jesus is like, what in the world are you talking about? He says, when you, when, you, when you get to your throne, can my two sons, James and John, can they be at your right hand and your left hand when you get to the kingdom level? And he's like, you don't even know what you're asking. You don't know what you're asking. Because the baptism that I'm baptized with, it's a high price. And so he says to them, absolutely, they can be baptized with this baptism, but to sit on my right and left hand is not for me to give. And they were like, well, what does that even mean? I don't know. And so then the king who's supposed to establish this kingdom where God comes in and lives among the Jews, he's taken captive by the Romans because of the Jews. He's beaten 40 times, 49 times. He's tortured. He's killed. And the hopes of a kingdom come died on that Passover day. And everything that they had thought was going to happen stopped when he died. Because as far as they knew, he was the king. And not did he just die a natural death, as in the possibility of rising from that natural death. His body was mutilated, destroyed. But he had told them, this is part of the kingdom building. They will kill me, and in three days, I will rise. We know the story. And then when Jesus comes back to life, they of all people should have believed, but didn't believe. <laughs> they had seen him raise the dead, but yet they had seen him destroyed, physically destroyed by the Romans. And so when he rose from the dead and he comes to them, he says to them, you foolish and slow of heart to believe all the prophets. Because he's painting for them or telling them, this is the kingdom. It's not a political system. It is a kingdom of heaven that lives in the heart of people. And so many people will come into this kingdom that they will make earth change to be the habitation of God. And one day, the kingdoms of this world and the kingdoms of our Lord in Christ will become the kingdoms of our Lord of Christ. That's the promise. And Jesus looks at them, and I love it. The, probably the, the speech or the, the teaching I would have loved to hear the most of my life was for 40 days, Jesus hung out with the disciples, and he spends time with these two guys on this road to Emmaus. One of the guys, I think his name was Cleopas, and I forgot the other guy, Simon. And, and as they're walking, he says, and he unraveled to them or told them of all of the prophecies and why Christ had to die. Why? Because the problem with the building a kingdom that was his was the human nature was broken. And it was only in his death that the sinful nature of man 
could be changed into the life-giving nature of God. Everyone needed a change of heart, not just a change of political power. And everyone that believes in him, he will give this new life to, to be in his kingdom. And then as he rose from the dead and he tells them the kingdom plans, then he says, now you go into all the world and you tell people this good news. There's a king, he has a kingdom, and you can be a part because he's coming back to live with us. And they that believe, they will be given a new heart and a new mind and become new in him so that when the king is comes, when the king comes, they will look like the king. John says it like this. If we, the passage, I'm sorry, John blank. He says, when we see him as he is, we will be like him. And everyone that has this hope purifies himself even as he is pure. You know what you and I are living for, whether you knew it when you enlisted or not into this kingdom. You know what we're living for? One day, soon, he is coming. And the life we're living now is to prepare, not just for a celebratory welcome, but that we will be able to stand in his presence, fully made like him. Our nature will be like his nature. Everyone that has this hope, you know why we're telling you be holy as he is holy? Because when he comes, there will be no sin in his presence. No carnal desire will live. You must be like him. And that is the story of salvation, which is not easy to just minimize and to confess your sins. He wants to change your life. And as we look at that story, how do we navigate from where you're at now to the person you're to become then in the future? Know this, God's will for your life or this journey of faith is not about you being wealthy and successful, having a good life, raising good kids. That's not the markers of success. The mark of success is that you become like Jesus. I know a lot of times we want God's will for our life to be all these things done, accomplishments checked off. But God's will for your life is that you become like him. And if you fail at that, you failed at everything else. And I'm not saying that in a condemning way. I'm just saying this is the finish line. You're to look like Jesus. And so in this life, Jesus said to the disciples, you will have tribulation. You will have offenses. And there's things that are coming to destroy you because they're trying to keep you from entering into the kingdom life to become one of the king's sons and daughters. And your job is to battle through those things, overcome the things that drove Israel into cyclical sin and nations into cyclical sin, the, the idols of pride, unforgiveness, bitterness, strife, perversion, complacency, those are the enemies of the kingdom. But when the Holy Spirit is inside of us, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in you, he will make alive your mortal body. Why? So you can live in a kingdom. 
And Jesus was looking for ambassadors of his kingdom, which means what? Those that represent him and his kingdom to go into all the world and reconcile or bring people to the awareness of this is his kingdom. If you want to know what Jesus looks like, watch me because I am his follower. I don't see, Stephen, that, that's a big, tall order. I would rather them watch, watch you than watch me. No, you've been given the keys to the kingdom. In fact, Jesus tells Peter, listen, Peter, I am the Christ. Or Peter says, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus says to him, on this revelation that I am the Messiah, the son of the living God, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And I give you, Peter and the disciples, the keys to bind in heaven by binding on earth and loosing on heaven, loosing in heaven what you loose on earth. Because what you say and what you do as an ambassador of my kingdom is what's gonna establish my kingdom on earth. And with that authority, Jesus launched the church, his kingdom. And when he launched that church, he didn't launch that church to say, just hang out until everything just goes horribly wrong and shipwrecked and everything gets horribly worse and then I'll come and bail you out. No, he said, go into all the world. And then he said this, this gospel of the kingdom must be preached in all the world and then the end will come. You thought the end was gonna come once you figured out who the Antichrist was. He already knows that part. You thought the end was gonna come when everything gets bad and you know, all this you know, eschatological nonsense comes to pass. The end doesn't come until you and I establish the kingdom in every part of the world. In fact, it says that we can hasten his return. What does that mean? Speed it up. How? By taking this message of the kingdom into all the world. And that's the introduction. <laughs> Next week, we'll continue on this message. <laughs> Here's what I want to show you. When we look at the kingdom and how we can be a part of it, there's an element that is the underlying current or the undercurrent of how we follow Jesus to establish his kingdom in the world. The Bible says like this, go with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11. Well, if I can get there. It says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for. Now read this in the context of what I just told you about a kingdom coming. And the Jews, the Hebrews, whom this letter is written to, anticipating that coming of God's kingdom. And this is the admonition or the encouragement the writer of Hebrews gives. He says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. For by it, the elders obtain a good testimony. By faith, we understand the worlds were framed by the word of God, so that the things which are seen were not made of the things which are visible. Keep reading here. By faith... Abel offered to God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and through it, he being dead still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken away so that he did not, he did not see death, 
and was not found because God had taken him away. Before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. By faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness, which is according to faith. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to the place which he would receive as an inheritance. And when he went out, not knowing where he was going, by faith he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob and the heirs of him of the same promise. For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. By faith, Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed. And she bore a child when she was past the age because she judged him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born as many as the stars of the sky in multitude, innumerable as the sands which is by the seashore. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, confessed them, that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. And truly, if they had called to mind the country from which they had come out, they would have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said, in Isaac, your seed shall be called. Concluding that God was able to raise him up, even from the dead, from which he also received him in a figurative sense. And then he goes on, by faith, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses. And the story goes on. All these patriarchs, moved, lived, behaved in the faith that one day his kingdom was coming and that there would be a Messiah, a promised one, who would show them how to cultivate, build, establish this kingdom. What is it that they had that guided their life to establish this kingdom? It's this little word called faith. They had faith. Faith is the muscle, ability, capacity. Faith is the ability to believe God for what he has said in the face of all the odds. What is faith? It is holding to this hope of becoming his people. And that hope changes us. Faith changes us. What is the... what? catalyst empowers our faith or how do we build our faith you need to first know that faith is fueled by love in galatians chapter 5 verse 6 it says faith works through love faith works what through love so the reason we believe god is coming and establishing his kingdom and that that promise will happen is not because we just want to have a great life in the future it's because we love the one with whom that life will be our love for jesus is what empowers our faith. And listen, if you are in this room and you don't passionately 
love Jesus, you're not going to be able to sustain as he brings, brings about his kingdom. Because faith has to be fueled by love. Now, I know sometimes the way we characterize love as just an emotional response often can eliminate or diminish the power of love. Love is not just an emotional response. Love is a commitment that you are going to stick with the one you love no matter what. No matter what. And that love that you need to have to fuel faith is not even your ability to love. It's God's ability of love put in our hearts by him. The love of God compels us, Paul would later write. So if you're not madly in love with Jesus, and you're just this, I like him, and he's good, but I'm not in love with him, Stephen, then that means there's other things in the way that have pulled your affections away from him. That's why keeping him the first love, as we talked a few weeks ago, is such a priority. Because when you're not in love with Jesus, it means not that you're a bad person, it means you have other lovers, hobbies, activities, entertainment, busyness, success, things, people in the way. Because inside of you, when you're born again, is an innate desire to love God. You have to work at not loving him. God has put in our hearts a love for him. Faith produces evidence as well. Faith has to be fueled by love, but it produces evidence in their life. As we went through this litany of these men by faith, men and women by faith, did these things because they believed in a promise to come. How did they navigate through their life? They navigated by listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit, speaking to them, the same Spirit who now speaks in us. Faith is the evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in you. God gives every believer, listen, and measure of faith. If you're saying, Stephen, I don't have faith, the Bible says in Romans chapter 12, verse three, for I say, Paul writing, through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think soberly, as God has dealt to each one a measure of faith. You have an ability put inside of you by God to believe him for what he says. God put faith inside of you. And he doesn't say just the believers, he says to every Man, man and woman has faith. Faith is the essence of how the righteous are called to live. Without faith, you will find yourself wandering from one year to the next in the hope of stumbling onto God's will. And listen, that's no way to live as a follower of Jesus. You should know where you're going. Jesus told the Pharisees, I know where I came from and I know where I'm going. And then he says, so is that that guidance is led by the Holy Spirit. You and I as followers of Jesus should know exactly where we came from, from sin, death, and destruction. And where are we going to establish God's kingdom in our lives, in our families, and in the communities we influence. That's where you're going. There should be no confusion about it. But there's so many distractions that keep us from that, right? We can easily listen to the voice of the world that our purpose in life is to be famous and successful and have all these friends and have all this stuff. And listen, God's not against success. He's not, God against, he's not against us having things or being successful. But when you think that's the purpose of life, you and I both know it is a shell of a sense of fulfillment. 
There's no fulfillment in that. <coughs> in the book of Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4, Habakkuk prophesying as the, as, as the close of the Old Testament prophet, one of the Old Testament prophets, he gives this clear contrast between the, the wicked and the righteous. And he says the wicked lives for themselves, for vanity, for pride, for power, for lust, for greed. And then he says, but the just, they shall live by faith. And then we just read a little earlier, Hebrews eleven six. but without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. What will our faith do? Exercising your faith will make you into the follower of Jesus that you desire to be. I know we're running out of time, so let me just give this to you really quick. Ms. Grace, if you can come help me real quick. First Peter chapter one. And Peter, as he's writing this letter, just let me put it in the context of when this is happening. Jesus has died and rose again. The church is flourishing. This somewhere between 20 to 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, Peter takes up his pen to write his letter to the church. And he writes, and he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, a collect according to the foreknowledge of God, he says to them, listen, you were called by God, sanctified by the Spirit to obey Jesus. And he says to them, what, grace and peace to you. And he says, we have been begotten again to a living hope. What is this hope? that the kingdom will come. And then if you jump down to the very end of this, he says, he, he, well, let me just read the passage here. He says, verse um, three, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, listen, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have, been, you have been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen, you love. Though now you do not see him, yet believing, you rejoice with joy inexpressible, and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Faith is not built organically just by showing up at church and leaving, hearing good messages and leaving. Faith begins, as we talked about last week, listen to me, where the will of God is known. What is God's will for you? In this huge panoramic storyline of God wanting a people for himself, it applies to you. He wants you. Say, so Stephen, I gave my life to the Lord. Isn't that enough? No, he wants you every day to hear him, to engage with him. And when you hear him and engage with him, he gives us his words. And that's where faith begins. He says to you, Stephen, this is what I want in your life. I want to do this. I want you to raise your children like this. I want you to hear my voice and do these things. And then I have to believe what he says. And listen, when I get a word from God, I write it down 
put it somewhere and I go back to that word and I say, this is God's word for me. And let me say this to you as a church, and I know we're winding down here, but this is very important. We as a church cannot move forward in what God has for us unless each one of you get a word from God on what you are doing in this life and in this community. You have to have his word. I know the general revelation of God's word is this, you're to go and make disciples. If you're not doing that, step number one, make disciples. I don't know how, start learning, start preparing. But each one of you need a specific word from God. So Stephen, I thought that was just for the pastors and the preachers and, and the patriarchs of the Old Testament. It's for all of us. Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice and the voice of a stranger. They will not follow. There's so many voices right now. And, and I, would, I would go to, go to venture this, that there's so many voices now than ever before because it's so much more important now than ever before that you as a follower of Jesus can hear and receive a word to navigate through all the junk that's going on right now. We are inundated with so many people telling us why you're here, what to do, how to live. I mean, you can Google almost anything and get advice about anything. It doesn't mean it's good or accurate or even godly for that matter. But you need to hear God's voice. Nothing will replace that. Every follower of Jesus in this room, you have to have a word from God that says, here's why, here's what I need you to do. And I would love to tell you he gives you a 20-year plan. Sometimes he gives you a 10-minute plan. Here's what I want you to do right now. See, God, it doesn't seem as eternal value. Listen, obedience is the highest value in the kingdom. Sometimes God says, I just want you to forgive that person. And you, by faith, have to forgive. You, by faith, have to step out of your comfort zone and do something that you don't normally want to do because it's by faith. Thank you for listening to Stephen's podcast. To connect with us or to order his book, A Reason for Hope, visit stephensamuel.org. You can also find him on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at, you guessed it, Stephen Samuel. Thanks for listening.